We're excited as we continue to look at the life and ministry of Jesus. There's something kind of unique about this week. I didn't like the prayer either, buddy. It was a bad one. Something that's kind of interesting and unique about this, because when people go away on a trip, and that's, you know, Jesus travels around, you kind of get the highlights of the main things, and that's what we have of Jesus for the most part. You know, we see some of the miracles he did, we hear, you know, has this amazing sermon, but he traveled around. We don't know much of, hey, how did he get around from town to town? We just don't see that. We get an interesting kind of peek behind the curtain this week. What did that look like? After the Sermon on the Mount, you know, is Jesus like, hey, Peter, calls up an Uber. We got to get up to Capernaum. Like, find, like what did that look like? Because it happened. I mean, I am quite confident that they would figure out how to buy dinner. I don't think it was like every night a fishes and loaves miracle. Like after Jesus would preach, he'd be like, all right, what do we got? Mentos? Okay. Chick-fil-A. Boom. You know, like they had to eat. and It wasn't just like, oh, we got some sticks. We got some steaks. A1 sauce. You know, like it. I don't think that happened every night. They had to travel around. We kind of get to peek behind the curtain a little bit to look at how his ministry functioned and particularly fascinating is who was with him as he traveled around. So let's kind of do that. Let's dive in and kind of peek behind that curtain. We are in Luke 8. I'm going to pick it up right out of the gate. Soon afterward, he went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 that his apostles were with him. Let me speak to that for a minute because this is a beautiful synopsis of Jesus's ministry. This is the core of Jesus's ministry. He did many good things. He healed many people, but he primarily didn't have a healing ministry. The core of what Jesus was accomplishing was proclaiming and bringing the good news. That is the same Greek word we use when you hear it translated gospel. He preached the gospel and let people know that God was coming. The kingdom was moving. We should follow in that footsteps. That is what we should be about. That's what Jesus was about. But let's kind of peel back the curtain a little bit more because it wasn't just Jesus and the 12 apostles. Also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So as Jesus is traveling around, he's referred to as an itinerant preacher, meaning he didn't just stay in one place. He didn't have one massive church and then launch other churches. He traveled around as an itinerant preacher, but he traveled around, and you see with him were these group of women, which would have been radical for the time that Jesus had women disciples in his midst. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more. So it's the 12, but you also see kind of this group of women, which is interesting. But you also see how Scripture points out his ministry was funded. We're launching a trip to Costa Rica. We're going to have a fundraiser to El Camps, you know, tomorrow night. But it's not like Jesus, every time he took off, like had an El Camps fundraiser. There was no El Camps. How did it work? He had these wealthy women funding his trips. Kind of interesting. We know from the Gospel of John, so all of them traveling around, they just had one. It's not like pay your own way. It seemed that they had one common purse, and it turns out it is literally a purse. Get it? The women, it's not a wallet, it's a purse. We'll keep moving, it's fine. But you get the idea. It was these women that funded Jesus' ministry. That's how they were paying for dinner. That's how they were paying their way. I looked up the Greek word for these women. It's actually where we get our word for sugar mama. It's, the, it's not. Don't, I, I lied from the pulpit. Don't. Take me for that. That's not right. That's, don't take that off the internet. All right. 
But you see, that's kind of how their ministry got funded from these women. Now, just look at kind of another scene as Jesus is traveling around, what it looked like as he traveled around. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So again, just to get a picture, as he's traveling around, he kind of starts in the synagogue. But you notice you don't really hear much of that anymore. It looks like Jesus moves towards kind of an open-air preacher at times. We know he went around home to home, and he's just preaching from people's homes. But listen to what it said. Just the practicals of it. It was so crowded. I mean, think of like a concert, just standing room only, shoulder to shoulder. His family literally couldn't get to him because it was so crowded in this home. This is particularly interesting to me, not just me, like 10-year-old Catholic me. So cute little 10-year-old Catholic kid, a little quirky, a little bit of a loner, but overall cute. That's the picture. So as I was taught as a kid, you know, Jesus was conceived as a virgin, but Mary was perpetually a virgin. His mother and his brothers came to see him. Where does that come from? In the natural reading of the text is, these are Mary and Joseph's other children coming to see them, his other brothers. I mean, I don't think, as you look at the text, that that, why would he ever mandate Mary's perpetual virginity? If that was true, can you imagine Mary having to drop both of those bombs on Joseph? Like one, you know, you're engaged. Hey, by the way, I'm pregnant. Like, who was it? Was it Frankie? I knew. I could tell the way Frankie was looking at you. Like, no, it wasn't Frankie. It was God, and it was, you know, we're cool. But then from there, not only did they conceive his virgin, but she was perpetually forever. Why would we ever think that, particularly in light of the text? So I think that is kind of fascinating as we look at kind of Jesus' ministry and what that looked like a little bit of behind the scenes. What I want us to glean from that, because I don't know about you, but what I notice in God's word began to come to life is particularly who God chooses to work through, who God chooses as his disciples. Because I think the worldly system of what we value, if we were to all gather together, and maybe not just us, but even culturally, who should God use? We would have a list, and I think that list would look very different than God, than Jesus's list Because there's a lot of things that I think we value beyond what God does. And as we figure, man, am I disqualified? Could God use somebody like me? Let's look at that together. And I first want to talk about, before we look at what is God looking for to use you, I think there's a lot of fool's gold. Remember that expression, fool's gold? There's, you know, the ultimate, you know, material value in our culture is gold. That's like still the standard of value. But then there's this thing called fool's gold that it kind of looks like gold. So it it looks like it has value. It's something we can get excited about, we can cling to, we could show to other people to make it look like we have value. But in the end, it is fool's gold. It has no real value. And I think there's tons of those things that we cling to that jump out, particularly in this passage. So I want you to be wary of some of these fool's gold in our culture. Biological family of origin. We put a lot of weight behind this right out of the gates as he's interacting with his, you know, family. 
And he completely reorients the value system of they, do they have special privilege because of the family that they were born into? And he says, my family, and he recreates in a whole category of spiritual family, and essentially kind of putting on the back burner the family that you were born into. But for us, that's huge. I mean, don't you ever devalue yourself like that? Don't you ever look maybe at your family and think, how could God use somebody like me who's come from a family like I did? Whether to devalue or to overly value yourself, and it comes down to that. You ever heard this said, oh, he's gotta be a good kid. Why? He comes from a good family. And we value people. God couldn't use me because of the family, whether it be I was born into or adopted into. I remember my high school girlfriend, her parents didn't like me. They were weary of me because I came from a broken home and they thought I didn't come from a good family. As a punk high school kid, I, I kind of dug it. You know, they, they thought I was bad news. Like, That's right, Iceman, I am dangerous. You know, <laughs> so, I wasn't really dangerous, but it felt cool at the time. But we do that. We value, oh, they come from a good home so God can use somebody like you. And if you come from a bad home, how could God use somebody like you? That's fool's gold. Jesus reorients the entire identity and view of family. Of course, we can be wounded by our family, but it doesn't disqualify you and or give you a leg up on everybody else just because of where you came from. Socioeconomic background. A huge part of this passage, why this is in this passage One of the things I think that God is doing is highlighting this fact that amongst his disciples were women. Rabbis at this time would not have accepted women disciples. This was unbelievable that Jesus would welcome amongst his disciples and followers women who were second-class citizens in this society. God, Jesus, over and over takes those that are devalued and elevates them and gives them worth and value. I mean, that socioeconomic background, I mean, across the board. I mean, don't tell me in America today, in the midst of the economic engine we are, that we don't value the wealthy above the poor. Don't tell me that is not something. And there's reason there are other biblical warnings against that of showing favoritism to the rich. In God's economy, you're not more or less valuable, more or able to be used by him because of your bank account. That is fool's gold if you think because you have money and means that somehow God can use you and can't use the poor. So many times he takes the poor and elevates them and uses them. But what I love in this passage is he is always elevating the value and worth of the poor, those that are outcasted, but he doesn't devalue the rich. Think about his ministry. How was it funded? These women out of their means. They had means. These were wealthy women. And talk about kind of the, they were in the manager of Herod's palace. Like that was the family that she came from. So if you have means, which is really most of us in America, it's not like God devalues you either. So that is not what it comes down to. So I don't care what your bank account is. It doesn't matter your gender. If you feel like, I mean, how much of our society will still undervalue women? God does not do that let alone race. I mean, as a Christian, racism has always bothered me. Now, as an adoptive father trying to raise a black son, it infuriates infuriates me. You mean to tell me that God can't use you because of the color of your skin? That somehow, because you're white, you have a leg up than this person or whatever it is? I don't care what race. It's crazy to think that God could or couldn't use you or would or wouldn't 
because of the race that I was born into, because of my gender, because of my bank account. That is fool's gold. That is a worldly system that values people based on that. That is not God's system. Let me tell you some other things that we can cling to to give us security, to make us feel valuable, to make us feel like God can use somebody like me. And I want to highlight religious traditions. Jesus reorients the whole thing. Look, I already told you my background. And a huge thing was, and a huge thing that I felt security in, that so many other people in my family felt security in, that was fool's gold, as you would ask them to this day, well, I was baptized, I was confirmed. That's all my hope and security, my religious tradition, my religious resume. That is fool's gold. That doesn't get me anything because I was taken through some religious tradition. That is not what God values. And I'm not just picking on my background. We all can do that. We can all have different traditions that aren't bad. But if that is our hope in them, we're missing the point. So as good Protestants, yeah, God can use somebody like you. You go to church, you listen to sermons, you listen to podcasts, and you read Christian books, and you feel better than others because you go to church, because you have some religious traditions. What does he say? Look, my family, those in the family of God that I'm gonna use are those who hear the word of God and does it. That is what God is looking for, not people. They're not all bad. But if your hope is in that, You are clinging to fool's gold. God is looking for people that follow him, that serve him, that are obedient to him and what he calls, not that are religious. I think this quote kind of really brings it together a little bit. It is better to be obedient to one simple command of Christ than to have the whole of scripture committed to memory yet not lived out in life. It's a quote from a pastor. I tried to quote myself. I just want to see if it looks smarter quoting myself on the screen, you know? Like this one pastor. And J.B. Williams, doesn't that sound smarter? You know, it's like when you hear like A.W. Tozer, he sounds real smart, but if you're just like Al Tozer, like that doesn't sound smart. No offense to Al's in the room. You're wonderful people, but I just, I mean, quote by Pastor J.B. All right, it didn't work, but you get the point. What is God looking for? What does God value? Not having an, an impressive religious resume and putting your hope in that. Do you follow God? Do you hear God and obey him? Let me highlight one more thing. Not that we kind of give ourselves value, but surely we take away our value and we feel like we're disqualified from God using me because of my past baggage. And I want to kind of spend the rest of our time talking about Mary Magdalene. Because the scripture kind of highlights her. She is first in the list of the women. And Mary Magdalene will go on to be talked about 14 times in the Gospels. That is wildly more than most of the apostles. So clearly God is upholding her as an example of faith. But what do we know about her? She was tortured. Did you catch it? When you first read it, what was her story? She was tormented by seven demons. And even when it says seven, scholars kind of debate whether is that just being accurate, seven. Sometimes biblically, when you see that number, they're talking about just complete. She was completely tormented. You imagine the amount of counseling that Mary Magdalene needed after being tormented by seven demons. Look, we all have baggage. We all have issues in our life from our past. 
Mary Magdalene was a tortured soul with loads of baggage. That did not disqualify her. Why do we disqualify ourselves? Because we have baggage in our past. And let me speak to this specifically a little bit. I think in particularly when we have sexual baggage, we write ourselves off. And the reason I want to talk about that with Mary Magdalene is because you know what history has done to her? Somebody just asked me this last week. Wasn't she the prostitute that washed Jesus' feet? Well, maybe she could have been. It doesn't say she wasn't, but there's no reason in the text to believe that. Yes, their stories are close to each other, but we have turned her into a prostitute. And I bring that up because I think in particular, some of the things that we tend to have value in, I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that we live in an over-sexualized culture. And let me in particular apologize to you women. I'm sorry that you have been overly sexualized and that is your identity. That is not God's economy. That is not what we are valued by. So whatever your baggage is, it doesn't disqualify you. You think God can use somebody like me. He's not looking people from that great home that come from the right background, that have money, that have the religious resume and have no baggage. That is not what God is looking for. Don't you disqualify yourself based off of that. Who was Mary? What did she have? What does God value? Their identity, these women, were healed. We know that they were wounded women. What the scripture says, that these women were healed. They experienced God's love in their life and they were devoted to him. If you want to be used by God, that's what he values. Have you experienced his love in the midst of all your baggage and are you devoted to him? I mean, they funded his ministry. Are you giving because out of your love for him, do you serve him with your life and resources? If that's you, then God can use you and will regardless of all those things that we cling to. I want to look at the example of Mary Magdalene, not just in this passage, but looking ahead at some of the other things it says about her. Because the things that we think give us value in our life are way off. What is valued, what is beautiful in God's eyes, it's Mary Magdalene. And I want to kind of read. I got this from Bible Gateway. It's a longer kind of extended kind of passage, but I want you to just soak it in as it talks and describes who Mary Magdalene was. It was Mary that was present with the other women at the mock trial of Jesus. No longer is he on the road with the crowds gathering and hanging on his words. It was Mary that was present in Pilate's hall and saw and heard the religious leaders clamoring for the blood of him who was so precious to her heart. She listened as Pontius Pilate pronounced his death sentence of crucifixion, although he had found no guilt in him. It was she that witnessed and wept as Jesus left the hall to be spat upon and ill-treated by the crowd thirsting for his blood. Then she saw him led out to Calvary's fatal mount to be nailed to a tree. Mary was one of the sorrowing group of women who stood as near as they could to comfort Jesus by their presence in the closing agonies of the crucifixion. It was Mary that listened with a broken heart to his bitter cries and watched through those dread hours until at last the Roman soldier thrust his spear into her Savior's side and declared him dead. It was Mary Magdalene with loving lips and hands pressing against the bleeding feet of Christ. Yes, she was the one that was there when they crucified her Lord. 
Last at the cross where Jesus died as the Lamb of God, Mary Magdalene was also the first at the garden to witness the most important event in the world, in all of world history in the pivotal truth of Christianity, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a great honor God conferred upon the faithful Mary Magdalene in permitting her to be the first witness of that resurrection. Mary, so full of love for her Lord, felt that all others must know him whose body was missing from the tomb. She never once stopped to think of her own weakness and vulnerability. Then one word from the voice she now recognized uttered her name, Mary. That old familiar tone gripped her heart and instantly she cried out, Rabboni, which is the strongest expression of reverent love. Then Jesus commissioned Mary to become the first herald of his resurrection. She had to go and announce the greatest news ever proclaimed. He told her, go and tell the brethren. Jesus' whole ministry was to go and proclaim the gospel. Now for the first time, we see the fullness of the good news and the gospel. And who does God choose to carry out that first mission? Mary Magdalene. He chooses a woman to be the first because not because of where she came from, not because of who she was. Don't disqualify yourself based off of any of those things that the world says is important. It wasn't because she was weak, it wasn't because she was a woman, it was because she loved Jesus. I think of that time when Gwen broke her arm and I will never forget the screams of anguish to the point where I had to walk away because I couldn't bear it. And it was my wife sitting in that room out of her love for my daughter that kept her there. It wasn't her weakness that kept her there. It was her devotion and love, like the devotion and love of Mary Magdalene for her Lord. That's what God is looking for. Will you pray with me? Father, help us now, God, to repent of the fool's gold in our life out of so many of the things that we cling to that make us feel like we have value, as if we have money, or if we have the right color of skin, if we have the right religious resume. God, if we haven't had too much baggage, God, help us right now let go of those things. God, would you free us from clinging to that fool's gold? There's no real worth in that. God, that we would be known as people that have been healed by you and are devoted to you. That is what you value. That is what you look for. In Jesus' name, amen.